Hello and welcome back to the PGR Cast. It's a podcast about life as a postgraduate research student. Sometimes on this show we talk about research and overcoming the challenges we face in our research degrees. Sometimes we talk about wider academic life, and sometimes we talk about the various things that PGRs have going on beside their degrees. Today we are sticking very much in the latter category because we're going to listen to the second half of our discussion about the popular postgrad pastime that is playing tabletop role-playing games or TTRPGs. My name is Rory. I'm a final year PhD student in glaciology, and I'm joined today by Olivia Reddy. Hello. Hi, Rory. How are you doing? Yeah, not too, not too bad. Thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I'm okay. Uh, I've not had, I think, as an exciting last month as you. Are you uh, jet lagged? Um, I feel like now that I've been back from Australia for uh, two weeks now, I think, since I got back almost. I can't claim to be jet lagged anymore. Um, I think I'm just tired. Um, <laughs> you know, just like a standard PhD is. But yeah, I had a pretty exciting time. I was in Australia for a conference, actually, where I got to meet my project partners who I'd been working with for the past two and a half years. There were about 13 of us and we all finally got to meet in person, which was just, yeah, it, it, it was fantastic. We were from all across the world. And this conference in Australia happened to be the place that we all met each other. A long way to go, for sure. But yeah, definitely, definitely worth it. It is a long way for you. But I presume a lot of time on an aeroplane means a lot of time to listen to podcasts. So have you had a chance to listen back to last week's episode, or I guess two weeks ago, when this podcast is going to come out? I have. I have listened to it. Well, most of it. Um, should I say that I have listened to all of it? Um <laughs> No, I think, be honest. <laughs> I wouldn't have listened to it so much had I not been editing it. <laughs> I, I've listened to most of it, most of it. It's, um, I think it's always weird listening to your own voice back on certain things. But no, the bits that I did listen to, like it was quite fun to hear the conversation that we had again. And actually interesting to see how many questions I was asking all the time as well. It's definitely something that I am very interested in. And actually I was talking to... um. A friend the other day who's a postdoc at the University of Bristol and um, she hasn't listened to the episode yet but she saw the title and was like oh my god no way um, when I was doing my PhD as well my partner and I we got really into um, role-playing <laughs> games nice. um, with like people that were also at their university in the states and they got really into it during their degrees um, and actually her partner is um since they've come to the UK, he's been really wanting to like set one up and be like the dungeon master for one of them. And so I may potentially find a group to join of all beginners. So that's quite exciting. It is. And also as a PhD student, it's quite nice to find a group of people who can understand how difficult it can be with the research schedule to schedule in regular meetups. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, before we hop into this episode, I thought it might be fun to refresh your newfound knowledge of D&D classes. So what I've done is I've gone online and I found a flowchart called Which 5th Edition D&D Class Should You Play? Because being a postgraduate research student, I had to find a way to slip a chart in somewhere. Ooh, okay, yeah. Show, show me the flowchart. <laughs> oh no, one does not simply just see the flowchart. Otherwise, you know, you might get spoilers for where you're headed. So I thought I'd just 
blindly read you questions? I'm going to end up as like a troll or something. Okay, let's. <laughs> it's okay. This is this is classes. It's not not the uh, the race slash species side of things. And right. so it, it's more the job you get. It's like we talked about paladins last time. Right. Yeah. Okay. So are you going to be answering as Olivia or are you going to be answering as your ideal next character? I'm going to answer as a character because I feel like I don't want people to psychoanalyze me if I answer as myself. So <laughs> okay. let's go as a, as a character. Yeah. All right. So there are multiple choice options, but I'll just ask you the question. And then if you're between options, I'll let you know what they are specifically. Okay, cool. So how do you react to danger? Run head first towards it. Great. I don't mind charging in as an option. So we're going Perfect. that way. Are you more strong or nimble? No prizes for guessing what the two options are on this one. <laughs> oh, I wonder. I wonder. I wonder. Um, let's. Is, is there an option for neither? Um... <laughs> there's not on this one. I've been on other flow charts where there's a bit of the middle or neither. But this one is just strong or nimble. Let, let's go with strong. Okay, you are more strong. I'm scrolling all the way to the bottom of the flowchart now. Are you good with the gods? <laughs> um, I'm going to go with no. Cool. The options were, I got him on speed dial or meh. So <laughs> meh it is. <laughs> are you prone to fly into a rage? Yes. Well then, in that case, just let me crunch the numbers. <gasps> let me know, let me know, let me know. Olivia Reddy, you are, as we've all suspected, a barbarian. <laughs> there is a little text description for you here as well. Barbarians are savage warriors who embrace their animal nature and learn to channel primal rage. So yeah, how do you feel about playing a barbarian? I've just been um I've been rewatching Game of Thrones, so I'm now imagining myself as like a wildling kind of mm. character. Um, yeah, it, is it Tormund? The uh... yes. yes, yes, yes. Oh yeah, I'm sure there's someone else out there who has already categorised every single Game of Thrones character by their D and D class and subclass, but I'm ninety five percent certain that Tormund will fall somewhere under barbarian. See, look at me, I'm learning already. Um... <laughs> you are doing so well. And if you'd like to learn one last thing, it's that every barbarian needs to master the phrase, I would like to rage. Because raging is an actual mechanic for D&D &D barbarians. I would like to rage, then. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. <laughs> I so... feel like it doesn't really go with my little laugh that comes afterwards. Um... <laughs> We'll get Luca on the voice changer. No one will ever yeah. know. <laughs> Perfect. Turns into like an evil throaty cackle. <laughs> All right. So while you go away and look up barbarians to your heart's content, everyone else, please enjoy the second half of our interview about RPGs for PGRs. What kind of effect do you think that um, TV shows like Stranger Things and, um, oh my God, I can't remember, The Big Bang Theory, that's what I'm thinking. Um, what kind of effect do you think that those kind of shows have had on perceptions towards role-playing games and stuff? Because obviously for anybody who's not watched either of those programs, they play 
Dungeons and Dragons in both of them. And those are both popular TV series. They're both centered around, I guess, the nerds of it as well. So in The Big Bang Theory, you have it as all the academic nerds that are playing Dungeons and Dragons. And in Stranger Things, you have the school kids who are nerds that are playing it. And you have that same, I guess, the, the sports person then not showing up to a campaign because they're doing sports instead at one point. So what kind of... Yeah, what kind of impact do you think that, I guess, TV nowadays has had normalising or not normalising, making it seem even more nerdy? Like, what kind of, yeah, effect do you think that would have had? I think it depends upon how they choose to portray the characters doing it and how old you are in terms of how you receive it. I saw Big Bang Theory when I was a teenager, and it was pushing at the time D&D into a stereotype that I didn't really want to be associated with. Later on, I think I started to see D&D differently, not via any particularly mainstream media, but via YouTube, seeing some people that I, I associated a lot more with myself as what I would consider quote unquote normal, not that any of us are normal. And so I'd say definitely seeing people that you can relate to playing helps a lot. But it, for me, at least, I think the Big Bang Theory might have slightly damaged my perception of D&D because it reinforced a stereotype that I don't think is necessarily true. Yeah, I would say I agree with that. But I, I also think that we we are fortunate that I think in a way it is more normalised, no matter what the sort of perception of it is from the programmes. Like if it's if it's talked about in the programmes, it's there's not a case where I can say, oh, I'm going to play D&D and someone will turn around and be like oh what what's that a lot more people know about what it is and I feel like I don't have to almost explain away my hobby with it I feel like it's something that often people have questions about and that's coming from a a genuine curiosity rather than a place of judgment like there still will be, be people that judge there are people that judge any type of hobby and I think I think back to, you know, the the time that Stranger Things is set in. And I can imagine it was probably a case of, well, if you didn't know somebody who played it, it would be incredibly difficult to get into. So I think, yeah, I think particularly with, with YouTube, like we've already mentioned, it's such a good way to get new people involved because it's showing these relatable people, these these everyday people playing these these role-playing games. And they, they're so much more accessible suddenly. They suddenly seem like something that you you could do with your friends rather than something that, you know, maybe some stereotypical characters are playing that create a specific perception of the type of person you maybe have to be to play a role-playing game. And then I guess with the... Obviously, it's role-playing, it's a lot of storytelling and stuff, and it's the dungeon master that has the, I don't know, leads the story how do you find that person um (laughs) how do you find that person how do you become that person what yeah I guess how does that all work because I feel like that's like you've both said it's a you can take a lot on when doing that role but you can take on as much or as little as you want um and I think Rory you mentioned that you have done it previously or you are doing it Lou I don't know if you ever have done that role or not or if it's something that you would want to do um and is it something that if you are a dungeon master like do you have to have played the game previously to then do the story 
or do you come up with a story find some newbies and kind of go through it together there are absolutely people who decide they want to play the game they don't know anyone else who plays the game and so they dive in and become the dungeon master straight away it's a very brave thing to do but it can absolutely be done when i started dming i'd only been playing my kind of other and ongoing campaign for about three months and so only playing not every week and so maybe i'd done five six sessions but I had already watched and listened to an increasing amount of Dungeons and Dragons as I started to get into it. So I was already quite familiar with the rules. And also because I knew that I was going to be a DM for new players, I didn't need to have such a deep understanding of law. I just needed to have a bit more than the people who were playing with me. So yeah, it's absolutely possible to teach yourself. It is easier, I think, if you've played a little bit because you start to get a feel for what makes a good DM versus what can be more difficult. For instance, players would rather have too much freedom than not enough freedom. One common criticism you hear rallied at various DMs is that they are railroady, which is to say they've written a story and they sort of want to keep too much creative control over that story. And so they try to force you down that path, whereas actually you've noticed another shiny thing and you want to go study it. So I think, yeah, definitely playing and watching and listening to other experiences will help inform what makes a good DM, but I'm very much still learning that. Yeah, I think, to be honest, you're never going to come across a DM that knows every monster in the, the book, every single rule, every single spell. You can try, but there are so many that it would be impossible to try and memorize it all. There is no shame in having to look at the book. There is no shame in having these things in front of you to reference to. And a lot of the time, at least from my experience, players really appreciate when the the DM is willing to have that book in front of them and do the check because that means that they know that they're they're not being duped out of a, a potential win. Um, I've never I've never DM'd. It's something that I'm interested in, but just something that I've I've just not not done yet. And I think another really good way of getting into DMing, if you've played before, is uh, there are campaigns that are written up online that you can buy or download, that you can run as a DM. So you don't have to worry about creating this huge world or creating the characters. It's all set up for you. So you can just sort of get your players together, show them this this sort of their characters and just dive in because it's all written out for you. Every step of the journey is there complete with, you know, your your, what you're expecting the dice rolls to look like and what what success looks like at various levels so there there is that option if you're maybe nervous about creating a world because that can be a really daunting thing it's something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about over the few years since I, I first started like getting involved in role-playing games because I think that's the that's the area that I'm maybe particularly interested in is like building this world creating the law around it but that you don't have to do that to be a DM and there, there will be DMs out there that will will appear to just know the rules and the handbook and everything inside out but there will still be things that they're unsure about so it's it's not something to feel insecure about but yeah I would say similarly to Rory if if you've not played before there are there are podcasts there are there are YouTube channels there's all sorts dedicated to people people basically 
publicly playing their campaigns. And that's a really good way to sort of get to grips with the rules, the sort of dynamics that you can form whilst you're playing um, that there's there's so much out there, even just written resources. There's so much out there. There's so many people also willing to talk about their experiences as well. So I'd say if you're thinking about it, do it. It's, it's interesting listening to you both speak about it because obviously it's PGR cast and I'm thinking of it in terms of how do they relate to each other, like writing a thesis and playing a role-playing game. And it's the case of, the kind of the freedom that you were talking about, Rory, I guess that comes with research in a sense that you've kind of got a plan at the beginning, but you have to be, you have to be aware that things are probably going to go wrong or things are going to turn up that you don't know what to do. And you have to kind of deal with it as you do. And um, it might not look like what you thought it would at the beginning in the end, but you've kind of made your way there as well so I guess I don't know if I'm like pulling at threads or just like trying to find something that, that that they work together but it seems like there is that kind of similarity where it's the the research the understanding kind of the imagination and the creativity which I think when it comes to PhDs as well a lot of people don't think about the creativity that's required within a PhD it, especially if it comes to something like science or engineering a lot of people probably think it's very rigid um, when actually for any type of research you need that creativity to explore and that freedom and that kind of drive to go forwards yeah it's all problem solving and most of the time you're solving a problem where the method or the way to solve the problem hasn't been done before or maybe there's something suitable that exists but it's only been done in a very different way so you're gonna you have to take in from all kinds of sources and inspirations in order to formulate a creative solution to measuring thing or answering a certain question. And that is one of the one of the very enjoyable things about Dungeons and Dragons, especially playing with PGRs, is I, I think a particular example with some friends where they were basically going through a glorified obstacle course in a race with some dwarves. As you do. Um, I had this chasm in front of them. And in my head, I knowing their characters and their character sheets, I thought of like four different ways in which they might try and get across the chasm. But my friend Will, the creative mastermind that he is, I think he was referencing Indiana Jones or something when he went a long way to the side, uh, got some like just general lint and sand and things out of his pockets and started sprinkling it across in case there was an invisible bridge that you could only see by covering it in dust or something. And it was such a wonderful idea that I had not planned for it. I was like, oh yeah, no, you found the bridge. Um, <laughs> it just, just, just as you thought, the dust settles and reveals this, this bridge and you dash across and you know maintain your lead over the angry, angry dwarves. That, that's, I think that's such a good example of why I love role-playing games, why... I love watching people play D&D because that's the thing. Even if you're maybe not feeling up to it, there's no reason why you can't necessarily watch whether that's online or whether you have friends that play and you're like, oh, I'd maybe like to come along and see what that's like. Um, there's, there's probably no harm in watching that. But yeah, I think just the the amount of possibilities and it sounds, it's, it potentially sounds like I'm clutching at straws here, but I I don't think I know a PGR who plays D&D &D that doesn't work well under pressure. 
And I, I, I see so many skills that are so valuable to us as PGRs that are also really valuable as as role players, as D&D players. Yeah, there's, that, there's a definite crossover there. Knowing when to take a risk. Yes. Um, knowing when something's not working, you've got to adapt. Knowing how to balance different needs at the same time. And also just storytelling. There's, there's a kind of a growing community who's speaking about academic writing. Talk about the importance to tell a story and that people are only going to be interested in your research if you can really adequately lay out the situation, the problem, um, what you're finding, what a solution could be in a way that will engage someone. And being able to tell any kind of story is absolutely beneficial to that kind of writing. I like how it's not just me then that saw the links between the two. Um <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think it's a stretch to say that role-playing games are a really good way of acquiring not just writing skills, but I guess soft skills for life in general. Yeah, and I I think that's that's something interesting that you've touched on there that I think I've seen I've seen particularly online I've seen a lot of parents introducing their kids to to role playing games and I also think that's a that's a really good way to like without sounding really cheesy or ridiculous teach them a lot of life skills and teach them about communication and working as part of a team and you know even things down to like empathy thinking about oh how would your character feel if this were to happen to them um but those those skills are things that aren't just valuable in childhood they're things that are valuable throughout life and so i think at whatever age you're playing they're skills that you're going to you know develop through playing really yeah stories are a great vehicle for kind of exploring various moral quandaries if that's something that your players are interested in I I personally struggle slightly playing a character that is anything other than good. I, I'm normally chaotic good. I'm happy to be wild and be lawful good. I struggle to go into the neutral and evil sides to things because I struggle to get into the mindset and enjoy the character for who they are. Some people can do that and that's great, but playing with kids, you know, I think they're quite good at working out that something there is something they disagree with, but it might take them a bit longer to work out, oh, this person who seems to be acting good, but is sort of, they wouldn't use, but authoritarian, is setting all the rules and controlling too much. They'll get a feeling that they don't like that. And that's sort of a good conversation starter, something to explore growing up. I love that. I wonder if it's worth talking to um, people from education to see if and how like role-playing games have been used with um, young kids as well to see how it could impact development. Oh, adults, I'm sure there's something in there about how sort of your mental health and your headspace will affect which characters you gravitate towards, which decisions you gravitate towards. And there comes the uh, uh, PGR uh, <laughs> loop background. <laughs> so we've been speaking of um, PGRs and mental health. Did lockdown affect your campaigns at all? Like, do you normally play in person? Do you normally play online? Like, and did it affect it in any other way? To be honest, most of the, I mean, particularly Pathfinder that I played, I got involved in a campaign through uh, a friend's friends and they live all over the country. So we very rarely played. We would literally only play maybe a couple of times a year. Mm. So we really looked forward to those events. We would literally play all day, but it didn't happen very often. And then COVID happened. 
And suddenly we were all stuck inside and we started playing every week online and suddenly two and a half years had passed and we'd progressed so much more in this campaign than we thought we would because we'd it was it was the highlight of our week during covid was logging on and playing D&D together and yeah it 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 can work really well online i think that's another thing that's really important to consider if you know people that want to play geography doesn't have to be a boundary there i think that's a, a really good point about how it brings people together because i've actually I have almost exclusively played online. And actually, before we started playing, I hadn't really spoken to many people I did my undergraduate with for about four years. And then suddenly there's this small group of people that I used to know that I'm playing with every two weeks. And I felt a lot closer to the people I went to uni with. And same for um, my, my friends from home that I've been DMing for. I have only ever done that online because we're split out all over the country now. It's also it's one of my main connections to Tasha, my old flatmate. My more recent flatmates as well had never played, but I knew that they were big fans of Harry Potter. And so I did a little one shot Wands and Wizards spin off with them. They're now back in Germany, but we always have that connection that we've had that story. Those characters exist. We can pick that back up whenever suits us. Yeah, that's I- really nice. Uh, it, oh, sorry. I was going to say it's like quite a nice thing that to see, obviously, with COVID, it's dreadful but there's some like of these the nicer things that have come out of the whole being at home and the creative side of things and I can imagine like you're saying it's it was the highlight of your week I can imagine how amazing it would have been for your mental health as well just knowing that you get to do this and even if you can't travel or physically explore another world mentally you you can as well yeah exactly and I think it was to be honest, I think it was really good for for our DM as well, because um, this person in particular, they spent years cultivating this world. And the way that we were only playing in person meant that we were never going to get through this campaign. We were never going to explore it in the way that they wanted us to. But suddenly we were playing every week. Things were really progressing and they could actually see their world properly come to life. And I cannot imagine how rewarding that must have felt knowing that some of the there were there were punchlines that weren't dropped until we were maybe two years into the campaign that he'd been building up this entire time and it was it was so I've had some hilarious moments some heartbreaking moments as well playing D&D when you lose a character that you've all become so connected to it can be devastating and yeah, I I can't recommend it enough really for the community that it brings you, the benefits it has to your mental health and just the, I think I mentioned it earlier, but also the escapism. Sometimes you just need to let go a little bit, uh, but not in the same way that you'd maybe like passively watch a film or read a book in a, in a way that you're you're engaging maybe that little bit more, but it still feels something completely different. And there aren't many situations where you can escape with friends yes i i can dive into his dark materials i can spend some time reading cool stories in a world i really enjoy i can't bring my friends with me whereas when you've designed your own world your friends then start modifying it because it's collaborative storytelling and suddenly there's a whole race of tiny weasel people that were invented on a whim because my friend thought it was a good joke and it's just continued yeah so um in the in the, one of the games that I'm playing at the moment, I play this character that a lot of people thought was very similar to other characters that I played. So they were they were very sneaky, um, but I sort of 
turn this around um, by basically making it in this world that um, in the same way that ultimate frisbee is one of those sports that unless you know that it's a sport you sort of think oh what what what's that um hide and seek was in this world so instead of playing this really malicious sort of sneaky lex in the shadows character my character was someone who did lurk in the shadows but for completely innocent reasons and is one of the most naive friendliest people you'll ever meet it just so happens that that's the sport that they're super interested in and they're training for so it's it's always it's it's hilarious when you can work those little things in because now that's part of the law. Now part of this world is that hide and seek is, is a hugely competitive sport in this world. And it's something that people sort of chime in with little jokes about and you can add little tidbits and you can, you know, reference former champions and that sort of thing. Like you can, I think one of the, one of the best tips I would maybe give to a player or maybe protect, potentially more to a DM is don't get too stuck in the world that you've created. If you, if you've got a campaign planned, be prepared for that to change. Um, be open to it changing. Like the bridge example that you used, Rory, you've got to be open to allowing your, your players to modify it and change it. And don't expect the outcome to look as you expected it to just roll with it you've just got to roll with it and that's I think when you get the best results and when you have the best time oh it is glorious right friends inventing whole religions on the fly and you're just like yes it's got a whole lot in common with I know you're from your little acting background that sounds quite patronizing your little <laughs> acting background <laughs> from the acting background that you have improv the idea of yes and is, makes everything a lot more positive than building up rules and saying, no, that can't happen because this. I appreciate sometimes that you've got a, a rule in your world that you think is quite vital to the plot and maybe there is some trade-off that you have to make with your players. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think improv is a really good comparison because it is basically putting yourself in a situation where you know you have to move the story along, but you are not solely controlling the boundaries you have to think about everybody else involved and the yes and is so vital because you can you can come up against a lot of obstacles dice rolls in themselves can be a huge obstacle but it's then looking at that that failed dice roll that means oh you absolutely did not perceive anything in this room how does your character react to that that's the yes and being like whatever the dice say how does that inform what your character does? So yeah, improv is a really, really good comparison. And it can be that someone rolls a one because it's funny, they trip up on marbles. Those marbles now exist. They are in the universe. There's a reason those marbles are there and either the players can pick them up and use them or you can weave them randomly into the plot later on for a really satisfying callback. Yeah, I mean, another example, I don't want to give too many examples, but another example um, where I was playing a very sort of mischievous lurks in the shadows player who I worked separately with the DM to create an entirely different backstory to what the rest of the party knew. So one of the one of the things that happened maybe towards the end of the campaign was there was a huge reveal. And I wish we had filmed that that session that we played because the shock on everyone's faces when they suddenly realized that, you know, someone had been effectively playing a double agent this whole time. But part of how I played that character was recognizing that they'd not really had any personal connections before, but they'd grown really fond of the people that they'd been adventuring with. 
And so they began to get paranoid. So thinking about how the changing situations and the evolving story then impacts your character. They started getting really paranoid that they were going to get found out. And one of the ways that this manifested is we we attended this banquet and there was something suspicious about one of the barrels. And it turns out instead of containing ale, it contained gunpowder. But that meant from now on, my character was very wary of anything in a barrel. They were super paranoid. Whenever there were any barrels anywhere, they were so paranoid that it was that, that there, there was some sort of plot against them to foil their plans. And I think that's that's a really, really interesting way to use things that maybe the DM has put in or a character's mm. put in and think, okay, how would my character actually then move forward with that, not just in the short term, but in the long term as well? Can you use the same like stories and campaigns again? Because I'm I'm just thinking that the way you're describing it is very much like I played video games in the past where it's like you get to choose between three different actions and then depending on what action you take, it means that you set off on a different like path and that all these other paths are kind of close off to you. So I'm assuming that with this, because it, it's so ad hoc and creative all the time that you could start with the same thing, with the same kind of idea and the same story, but depending on a dice roll or something, it means it could take it a completely different direction. Yeah, I've got a particular arc that I've written for my friends. Currently, we haven't played in a little while. We're all split up. One of them's now in Australia. But when we manage to play again, I've got this arc written for them. And I've also turned it into a one-shot that I intend to play with the group of friends from university who got me into playing D&D. And I thought it'd be quite interesting to see how they play differently and also sort of use the one-shot as a trial run to see if this bit is written well enough to see if there's anything I would change when I play it again. And I'm also quite curious just to take a story from a different D&D group and put that exact same situation in front of my players and see if they make the same set of decisions or to see if we go in a completely different direction. Just the important thing is either having planned a lot or be very willing to improvise when they go immediately off off piste. Yeah, and I think about replayability as well. From the player's perspective, there's been a few, particularly one-shots that I've played, where I think, oh my goodness, I would love to play that as a completely different character. I would love to go through that that story, that plot, that adventure, but being someone completely different, because then my actions would completely change. Maybe I'd find out completely different elements of the story that I found out this time. So it, like, it's it's not just a case of the DM can take it to, to various campaigns that they're playing and various groups of people, but you could, in a sense, play the same campaign with the same people, but all playing different characters and you'd get a very different result. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I feel like this is worth mentioning because we've almost touched on it a few times. Is it, have you heard of a role-playing game called You Awaken in a Strange Place? I have, but I don't know much about it. So um, this is the opposite end of the spectrum where you there is one small set of rules and there is no prior planning. Um, and so this is the extreme yes and, and there is a lot of replayability, but you're never going to end up in the same setting, basically, because everyone turns up not knowing who their characters are going to be, what the story is going to be. And it basically works. You know how improv starts where they'll get people to write things on a piece of paper and then you pull it out of a hat yes. and that will determine how the improv is going to go. It sort of works like that, except the individual players, they'll, they'll, they all roll some dice and then according to the dice roll, it picks which single word you're going to write. And so someone will write like a genre, like Western. 
someone will write a location like nightclub. Another person will write, I think, an adjective. And uh, it could be timid. It could be <laughs> dangerous. And that there's a few different sets of rules like that that will just build from scratch on that session. What kind of world you're going to be playing in, uh, what your characters are going to be like. And you also have the ability whilst you're playing to try to introduce new facts about the world. Like if anyone gets particularly hungry, they start to shoot laser beams out of their eyes, for instance. And that can just become incorporated into the whole universe and it gets out of hand very quickly. So probably better for a one shot than a longer ongoing campaign. Um, but yeah, you can always find an RPG to suit the group and the mood, whether that is I want to plan things and I want to just go through the same plan, different times, different characters. Or in fact, I want to have almost a randomly generated series of events and just see which I enjoy. I have to say that sounds absolutely, that sounds so exciting, but also terrifying mm. at the same time. I think I I cannot imagine that being your first, imagine if that was your first ever role-playing experience. Just, I mean, it is the the ultimate yes and, and I can, I can just imagine myself being terrified of that before having, having done nothing, but that doesn't mean that, you know, everyone would feel that way. That might be the only way that some people choose to play role-playing games. And that's that's also so interesting. I think it can be actually a very good practice if you are quite an anxious person, quite anxious when presenting, to be put in a situation, a safe situation with friends where you realise actually nothing I say is wrong. I haven't ruined the game by introducing the fact that it hasn't rained in 400 years. I've just added an interesting element and we're all going to go along with it. That's so true. I think it's very freeing. And then when you're when you're starting a game, how how many people do you need as a minimum to kind of like start? There are RPGs that exist that are literally one player plus a, a game master, so potentially you know two players. On the other end of the spectrum, there are some with large numbers. The first time I ever played that one shot, my friend put out in a Facebook group chat of our old university friends, anyone want to join? A lot more people joined than he expected. I think we had eight or nine players. My only caution there is it's more difficult to run a game, certainly in D&D, with more players, because there's so much more to keep track of. It's something, D&D, you can play just talking, or you can go kind of the whole hog and get like boards and figurines and stuff. I think the larger the group you have, the more necessary it is, especially in things like combat, to have a map. And so people can visualize each other and where they are and what the situation is better. As well as the fact that, in D&D at least, fighting takes sometimes a long time, especially if you've got a large group. I was DMing for the first time only with four or five, I think five players. And sometimes it would they would take five, 10, 15 minutes per person to decide what they wanted to do. A single round of combat in D&D is six seconds long. And so if you have five people each taking 10 minutes, you're taking the best part of an hour to decide how six seconds of combat happens. So um, there's a happy medium. I, I like running for two to four people particularly. Yeah, the games that I've played have always had between three and six people playing and then with the, the dungeon master or games master there as well. And I think, yeah, even with six, it can it can get 
very it can get exhausting because the more players you have the longer the sessions have to be to ensure that you're making progress so it can it can be really tiring yeah that everyone gets a say gets some kind of narrative input yes um because certainly in, in combat situations you can introduce rules like make your decision in 20 seconds that will help speed the thing along but it might not necessarily give people enough narrative input when there's say a puzzle to solve yeah, or exactly. they need to decide where to go. So it's definitely something to speak with your players about before you start. The importance of, now we're really going into specific D&D things, uh, the idea of a session zero, which is before you play, you sit down and you talk about what you want. You know, Do we want to take ourselves seriously, a la Lord of the Rings, critical role? Do we want to just have fun, a la Monty Python, Oxventure off the top of my head? Uh, they're, they're both correct ways to play, but you want to make sure there's not too much dissonance. You don't want one person going in expecting it's going to be very lighthearted and another person going in like, I want to grind. It can be very fun to have those characters juxtaposed as long as it's the characters that are juxtaposed and not the players who want different things out of the game. And another really kind of important session zero thing is kind of setting boundaries. You can role play any part of life. There are some parts of life that people don't want in their escapism world, and that's completely fine. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've really valued about every every group I've been involved with that played um, any form of role-playing game is that, yeah, during our session zero, our game master, our dungeon master has come around and said, please write down on on this, on this whether it's a post-it note or whatever, any topics that you do not want to come up, whether that's due to any form of experience ever it can be for whatever reason um but please let me know if there's anything you don't want to be brought up this will all be kept anonymous this will not be made public knowledge to the rest of the group because it, it doesn't have to be but it's so important to basically ensure that it's a safe space for everybody involved because you're not going to feel that sense of escapism you're not going to be able to fully immerse yourself if you're constantly worried that something that you you would rather not come up in your fantasy world will suddenly appear and that's really important and it's something that I really value and I think it should never be taken for granted yeah and it's so important they do actually include it in the dungeon master's guide as this is a really important thing that you should consider doing with your players and I was introduced to the idea by my my first dm Richard and he sort of gave us like a traffic light system like if it's red I do not want this at all I don't want it to exist in the universe if it's orange, it can exist, but I don't want to role play it. And so sort of an idea being like, if you are terrified of spiders, you might want to be in a universe without them, or you might be happy with them being there, but you don't want to role play like the horrible pincers and legs and movements and things, or, or sort of on the other end of the spectrum away from fears, role playing, you might not want to role play being in a relationship. Some D&D players are able to satisfyingly role play a romantic relationship or a sexual encounter. And a lot of people would be like, that's not what I want in my game. For me, that's either red, it's just not going to happen, or it's orange and you do the kind of old James Bond fade to black. The bard has picked someone up. Next morning, we go get the bard. It's really nice to know that you do have those like boundaries and that you can set it out in that way. And I quite like the traffic light system as well. I think that's a really nice way to do it. And so I'm just thinking from someone who has never played before, but I'm interested. It, so you need 
what were you saying between two to six ish people with dungeon master involved as well um then how much time do you need to set aside for it i guess is the other one if you're not playing i guess that depends on if it's a one of the one day ones which i can't remember what you called it or if it's like an ongoing campaign how much time would you say you need i guess weekly monthly per session it's something that you have to sort of get a feel for as a player often not that much you can especially for a one shot you can there's go on say D&D Beyond is a website that has a character generator sort of built into it and it can lead you through character creation and you can get that out of the way in half an hour and that could be the only thing you think about your character before playing as a game master or dungeon master it can be a lot longer I have seen videos where people talk about how they plan for campaigns and there are professional DMs out there who will spend half an hour and they have half a page of bullet points and the creative skills that they can just roll with that. And that's really impressive. I am on the right opposite end of the spectrum where for a 15 minute plan, I have six A4 sides in case I set something up and people go in a complete opposite direction. And it depends what you're comfortable with. I mean, I think also it's something that's really important to establish in your session zero, the availability of your players, the amount of time they can actually commit, because you can come in as a potential player or as a DM and say, right, we're going to do this. I'm expecting our sessions to be this long, but you've got to you've got to make that decision with everyone else in your group, really. You've got to find something that works for everyone. And it might be that you maybe spend one night a fortnight maybe doing three or four hours but then you promise that once every couple of months you'll meet up on a weekend and spend a day doing it like it doesn't have to be that it's always the same amount of time that you're spending on it I think one of the really good things about role-playing games is that you can literally stand up and walk away and come back three months later and just pick up where you left off which I think is one of the massive benefits in comparison to say a board game where you you could be playing a board game if you need to leave you need to leave and that has to be packed away um whereas with a with a role playing game all right you can have physical stuff in front of you but a lot of the time it is designed to be quite transportable um it's not always the case but a lot of the time it is designed that way because people know the nature of the game is we're setting this up for a few hours and then we're taking it away until next time. Next time might be tomorrow. It might be next week. It might be next month. It might be in six months. Yeah, that's good to know all the different boundaries and stuff. And I think that after this, at some time this week, I'm going to end up looking on YouTube, hopefully with some recommendations from you guys. Um, <laughs> look at something on YouTube um, that I can watch to kind of get more of a, a feel for it. And then maybe I can go on my like own mission to um find people to join me on one um <laughs> yeah do you have do you have anything you'd like to suggest off the top of your head i mean the main one that i've watched play D and also blades in the dark is ox venture you mentioned them earlier they are a lovely group of people who oh <laughs> Rory is now showing me uh, Oxventure merch <laughs> that, that, I, that I wear all the time. <laughs> um, basically, they run a couple of YouTube channels. 
that are basically talking about all kinds of different nerd content, game content. And I think as a sort of prize to the viewers for reaching a certain number of subscribers on their YouTube channels, they did a um, like a, a one-off special, but it got such good feedback and such good responses from everybody that they they made it into this this huge thing that's now been going on for years and there are t-shirts with catchphrases on and they make their own dice sets now and the the community is massive so at certain comic cons as well they'll do live D&D where they play through as well and I I find them a a really fun bunch to watch in terms of what I learn from it but also just the story and the way that uh their dm johnny is just able to manipulate the rules at will when somebody does something really cool which is something that i really appreciate yeah in, in preparation for this episode this morning on the bus i listened to episode 100 of their podcast which happened to be a live episode that i went to for my birthday last year oh wow <laughs> um it's uh with uh, are you i'm not fully caught not, up not, yet not fully unfortunately up. no it, it's got a, a special guest who is extremely extremely talented and it's really interesting seeing how they they play with a new character just introduced to the fray it's like i've literally just searched them on youtube and they dress up as well yes yes and that's really cool it's not a really common thing but i feel like they've they've changed a lot of perceptions on dressing up to play DD. the very first session they do the only kind of dressing up that happens is one of them wears a cape and then after that point, I don't know what the decision was, but they just decided to go full costume every episode they record. I guess because they're recording for YouTube, they wanted to make it more of a visual spectacle. And it's not something that I've seen in other groups and I don't think is necessarily very common, but there is a craft to it and it makes it that bit more immersive that everyone has quite a good image of what these characters look like. Yeah, and I think especially because they ventured into Blades in the Dark as well, I think it can be beneficial to them having those really distinctive characters with those appearances that they they dress up as because it, it makes it easier to distinguish when you're watching because I mean when I when I've been catching up previously I've gone from watching an Ox Venture does D&D to Ox Venture in the dark um and it can be it can be you know that there's suddenly you're watching someone play a completely different character and they do that so well but I think part of yeah part of the sort of visual element of that and the costume something that I mm. something that I really appreciate. And I, I use their videos a lot for learning how to DM, partly because Johnny Chiodini is this person I mentioned who they plan for about half an hour off and like half an A4 page. They do some very minimalist planning. Um but there is a uh, they have a three-part series on Dicebreaker, which is a different YouTube channel where Johnny explains to Luke Westaway another one of the Ox Venturers, how to DM, and it culminates in a session led by Luke, Luke's first DMing session. And so it was a really interesting series to watch, to kind of see how people plan, how they formulate their ideas. And, and then I think there's also afterwards another session where Luke and Johnny sit down and talk about how it went and if anything would be different. Yeah, it's it's a really, really good learning opportunity. And I think there's another video of Johnny's that I always go back to because it is hilarious but also really informative. Oh, and welcome. 
<laughs> oh, that was Johnny. Um, and there's another video of Johnny's that I find really valuable, both in terms of learning, but also it is utterly hilarious. And that's a video where they basically talk about all the times where the D&D party has completely derailed their campaign. And it is a hilarious video where they talk about all the times that they thought that the party would move in one specific direction and it ended up being something completely different. There is also a spoiler war- warning attached to that, though, because if you are wanting to start Oxventure, um, maybe maybe wait until the end of the first season before watching that video if, you, if you're worried about getting spoilers there. As a counterpoint, and to bring us full circle, that video you've just described is the first thing that brought me into the D&D fold ever, is that was recommended for me during lockdown, I think I must have watched one or two other videos on the outside Xbox or extra channels. And I had that video suggestion came up for me. I watched it and I was like, I I relate a lot more to these people. They feel a lot more familiar to me. And then I went away and watched the first Oxventure episode, which reinforced my feelings that this is people that I could see myself in playing. And yeah, even though there were spoilers in that, I thoroughly enjoyed watching through the whole five-year series since. And so, yeah, just I thought that was a nice a nice moment to bring it round to my first, very first introduction to D&D as an adult. Yeah, I had no idea. But to be honest, I'm not surprised because they, they have a marvellous way of making it so accessible and so friendly. There's no, you know, any gatekeeping or anything like that. And I think that's one of the really amazing things about all of all of the people involved in that project is that they are so passionate, but in a way that they want more people to know about their passions. And I think that's amazing. And of the wider D&D community. I mean, I, I'm very interested in other role-playing games. But I think one of the advantages of the fact that D&D is that bit more popular and more widely played is it, there are so many other lovely people in the community. Many of them I follow on Twitter or I listen to their podcasts. And I feel that people have been breaking down stereotypes and there are such great role models there you know D sessions ran and campaigns ran entirely by women entirely by people of color shout out three black halflings and that is one of the really big advantages of going into even if it's more daunting and it's got a larger potential set of rules going into the biggest and most popular role-playing game there is it's interesting and obviously you can tell that i've um opened up the YouTube channel um, <laughs> already but it looks like something I'm, I'm definitely gonna watch that maybe when I have my lunch as well I might start watching one of the episodes because I've also just realized how long they are but it looks great and with the whole dressing up thing um, I've always wanted a cape but I've never had a reason to have a cape so maybe I could just get a cape now um... <laughs> go get a cape this is this is your word of wisdom Go get yourself a cape. Get a cape. So maybe that is the only starting point you need for creating your first D&D character. It's so exciting already. Serious superhero known only as the cape one. <laughs> the cape head one. <laughs> we'll, ha- we'll have to see how that develops. Um, <laughs> I just realised what the time is and I'm going to have to go. <laughs> Absolutely fine. That's very fine. I have loved having this conversation. I could talk about role-playing games for hours and still not be done. This has been really fun and I have learned so much.
hopefully hopefully things that are uh, digestible and not not too overwhelming yeah I mean I still have like I'm sure I could still ask a million questions and because I really want to do it um <laughs> so yeah just working out exactly how to start yeah well this this can maybe be a bit of an ongoing conversation I'm very happy to to split maybe this podcast up into a couple of a couple of episodes in part three, we can be introducing you to something and kind of track the journey of Olivia. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd definitely be up for that if you are. Yeah, yeah. we have you, to do it now. You edit this out of the podcast if you want to say yeah, no. If, if you don't, <laughs> yeah, if you don't know. No, 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 I, I do really want to do it. I mean, this is the reason I said yes to doing this episode. I really want to do it. And I was with some friends last week and they mentioned that they were doing a campaign and I was like oh no I'm busy that day um so yeah one day watch this space and that is the end of the interview so the real question Olivia is are you now the proud owner of a cape okay before anybody gets excited I haven't bought one yet but I have been looking into different types of capes recently Different types of capes. Well, yeah, like different different like styles that you can have on them and what they could look like. And um, I know that the person in Oxventure, she has just like, like a simple black cape with like, I don't know if it had a hood or not, I can't remember. Mm. Um, but I feel like in true Olivia style, somehow down an Instagram hole or something, I ended up finding... <laughs> sequined capes with like <laughs> dots and things on it um so I feel like it's more superhero than what I was intending as like an old-timey Englishy kind of cape thing that I was imagining but yeah so I, I've been doing my research on different types of different types of capes so um so yeah that sounds less Lord of the Rings and more Cirque du Soleil Yes, yes, definitely. I have a lot of friends who are like um, circus performers and stuff. So maybe that's also why I've been looking into it in that way. <laughs> yeah, especially that sounds especially fun to combine with barbarian because <laughs> to be like the natural show person. However, when something goes wrong, that's when the rage descends. It's, it's, it's when the red cut starts coming over your eyes. Um. <laughs> you can get, you know, um. You know, you can get those sequin outfits where it's one pattern and then you put your hand along it to flip the sequins and the other side makes a different pattern. I already have a jacket like that. Um... <laughs> Perfect. If you can get a cape like that, that the one side is your ha happy, showy disposition and the other side is just black and angry. So here comes the barbarian. Watch out. She's carefully smoothing all the sequins on her cape to indicate that she's mad. I feel like that could be really intimidating as well. We're just standing there slowly smoothing out sequins, changing colour. Yeah. I guess it could be a version of just, you know, like rolling up your sleeves. Just have like patterns on just, just on your on your shoulders, kind of the epaulette that says, if you can read this, you're in trouble. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Pulling out a uh, great axe or something. Just hide it. That would be a great way to hide weapons, though, underneath the cape at the back. This is an entirely new trope that I'm sure has not yet been explored in fantasy, is having something under your cape. Perhaps, <laughs> I don't know, some kind of dagger below a cloak? 
<laughs> Moving on. Okay. Um... <laughs> there has still been talk of maybe trying to set up some kind of in-person introductory role-playing session. So I'll be excited to see if you if you have acquired a, a cape by that point or if you're going to turn up in a sequin jacket. I can definitely do one of those things. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I've got I've got my festival outfits. I can I can make something up. That, yeah. Yeah. There's also no reason we have to go particularly down a high fantasy route. So it could just be a festival drama. No, I'm I'm literally my head has gone to what my festival wardrobe looks like now. Um <laughs> There's, there, there's, I bought a few things recently, which I haven't been able to wear yet. So I'm, I'm getting excited about this. Um. <laughs> so yeah, just as we uh, work our way out of this episode, we spoke a little bit about recommendations. And to be honest, Lou and I got carried away talking about Oxventure because it turns out we have both listened to quite a lot. I was just curious if you had either A, listened to a lot of Oxventure, or B, come across any other recommendations you'd like to put out to PGR cast listeners. So I did, after listening to you and Lou, um, absolutely love Oxventure, I did go and um, watch the first few videos on their YouTube channel, which they're, they're, they're great. There's the it was the first one, and admittedly it is only the first one, um, but where they are talking about a magical rat and that's the only thing that I'll say about it. But it was, oh, it's just, it's just really good. It's very funny, very entertaining. Um, oh no. Bless you. That was astonishingly powerful. <laughs> this is, this is, this is what happens. Um, but yes, I, I've been listening to, um, well, been watching the YouTube um, Oxventure channel. And yeah, there's, the, the, the episode at the beginning I did really like. It's more of a case of, you know, when you found something new and then fitting it into your current entertainment schedule. Mm. Um, and sometimes I'm finding that a little bit difficult just because my partner and I are watching it together, actually. I started watching Looks Venture by myself and then within like the first three minutes, something happened. A particular song was played and I was just like, I can't watch this episode any further Mm. until I watch it with my partner um, because he will very much appreciate this as well so then I had to wait for him and then we we've been watching it um, but then obviously other things are out like The Last of Us and other things so we've got very distracted by other programs but I do really want to get back to watching it just because it is very funny and even even though they have the podcast as well which is I think it's the same as the YouTube channel I think it's just something about even watching people sit around a table in their outfits and then like with the random kind of shutterstock pictures or whatever that they put up on the screen just to like kind of slightly visualize what they're doing. Um, it's not much, but it, do it does make a little bit of a difference and it's quite, it's really fun actually. And then I guess from that as well, you said, is there anything else that I've watched? Yes. So there's a VFX channel that I watch on YouTube quite regularly anyway called Corridor Crew. And so they do VFX on lots and lots of different things. They've done science videos. Um, they do like um, have people on the show to react to good and bad VFX. They do like lots of different stunts and stuff. 
but one of the things that they do is they make of their own videos and what they've done i think over the past couple years maybe the past year um they've released a series called son of a dungeon which is basically <laughs> they've combined the kind of um playing board of a D game with their characters actually going into it and then they've created like all the vfx to go with it so actually they are their characters and they are in the game board and kind of like walking around doing all the challenges and exploring and stuff so yeah that that was that's quite cool as well and i guess like now i under i understand it a little bit more as well like the whole how D works um so that i can appreciate a bit more whilst watching it yeah that makes that makes sense i'm curious with the uh, corridor crew one because they are walking around do they still have things like rolling because uh, yeah, yeah so yeah they do so what they so it kind of switches between what they're doing at the table and the game that they they would have been playing mm. um and then also to what it looks like like okay yeah um in the game as well um so, so, so yeah they have one to illustrate the table play as yes. opposed to it sort of made me think a bit of a, a video game called Yakuza Like a Dragon, where there is a character who sees the world as a video role-playing game. But yeah, no, it's it's slightly less meta than that. It's more there's one thing illustrating the other. That sounds cool, though. Um... I've, I've actually, I've not played it, but I've heard great things. Well, it's on you... my to-do list. But as you say, there's so much entertainment out there. The difficulty isn't finding something that you want to watch or you want to listen to or you want to play. It's finding the time, which yes. is why I started out with Oxventure, for instance, watching the YouTube channel. But I've actually pivoted pretty much onto only listening to podcasts because I can do that while I'm driving to physio or something where I wouldn't already be doing something useful with my time. Yes. Yeah, I, I can really get that. It's the walking everywhere is the podcast time. Mm, it's ideal. Uh, like, I, it gives me a good excuse to avoid conversations on public transport. Yes, yes. <laughs> At the moment, I'm listening to a a new, well, it, it's not that new, but new to me podcast called Dungeons and Daddies, which is not a BDSM podcast. <laughs> That's their actual tagline. It is a just to clarify uh, that, that it's not. <laughs> Oh, but they play hard to it. I think the first, I think the first episode is called something like "The Ties That Bind." Amazing. Amazing. And without giving away again too much of the plot, it is all of the characters are from present day USA who end up in a traditional D and D setting, and they're all dads, or in one case, a stepdad, tasked with finding their children who have gone missing. And so uh, that is it, that's very interesting because you you know how in media often you'll have the character that acts as the viewer and we see things through their eyes because it's unfamiliar. In Harry Potter, it is Harry Potter because he grows up in the muggle world and then goes into the wizarding world. Yeah. Uh, what's quite cool about this is all of the characters in the main party are like that because none of them have any clue what's going on for quite some time. That sounds quite good. It's very, very enjoyable. It's 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 very light-hearted. It I think it toes a similar line to 
Oxventure between comedy and active role playing. It's maybe slightly harder on the role playing side of things, but they're definitely comparable. For anyone interested in very high level acting and high level role playing, I feel like I'd be remiss not to mention Critical Role, which I don't know if you've come across this before, Olivia, but Critical Role is a long running D&D show. I think it started on Twitch where professional voice actors actually run a campaign. It's got an enormous following. I think it's probably the largest D&D show in the world. Okay. And the fun thing is looking up the actors and then looking up what else they've been in and being like, oh, so-and-so from Whole Metal Alchemist is playing like, it's playing a halfling bard now. Or the... <laughs> It's DM'd by someone who's done a lot of things. And actually, Matt Mercer is a really good example of how to be a great DM. But uh, the dungeon master for that show also is the person who... Have you heard of the video game Overwatch? I have heard of that one. Cool. There's a particular character on there that he has voiced and is known for saying it's high noon before he goes on a killing rampage. (laughs) Does he do that in the critical role as well? He doesn't do that, but he does a very impressive array of character voices. That's something that you really get with the professional actors. And on a much on a much smaller scale, there's quite a new UK D&D group that I've come across recently called Bardic Quest, which again is UK-based actors and they have some really great voices. It's the whole thing isn't super polished but what is nice about it is that it's a very recent podcast and they're putting out material every week and so if you are the kind of person who likes a weekly bandwagon to hop on then that's also something to check out love a good bandwagon mm-hmm. other things i've come across that i feel like are worth mentioning just because i gave Oxventure so much airtime and didn't mention any other <laughs> dnd or rpg groups gotta even um, it out a little bit uh, between all of the ones that you yeah. actually like um <laughs> Yeah. Dicebreaker have a uh, Dicebreaker have a very recent series as well called Story Breakers, which is extremely it's in an extremely meta setting. It is based in your high fantasy world, but all of the characters are interns or employees of a local news company. <laughs> and Dicebreaker again is it's that step more serious in the role playing side than Oxventure. They're still hilarious, but the commitment to voices and characters is extremely impressive. I started listening to the Storybreaker series when recovering from my knee surgery, and yeah, they don't put out content that often, so it's quite a good one if you don't have that much time to get into something, as opposed to listening to Critical Role, which is literally hundreds of hours of content. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like is that um is that a podcast as well? I don't think it is. That's the main reason I haven't been listening that regularly is because I'm only aware that it exists on YouTube. To be fair, I can just do a quick search on Spotify and see if it comes up. Uh it does not come up on Spotify. But you know, maybe there is interest in that in the pipeline see what happens yeah. always tweet at dicebreaker on twitter or some of the individual uh characters uh and one of the now i'm thinking about it one of the members of the dicebreaker youtube channel which for the record that's a youtube channel about board games 
and tabletop games in general. Oh. One of the members of the Storybreakers cast is also in a TTRPG podcast that I mentioned last time called Three Black Halflings. And that is a podcast run by, as you might imagine from the name, people of color. And it is, it's actually, it's not all actual play. It's actually a balance between episodes, a lot more like the PGR cast, where we're just chatting about certain themes, as well as some very fun one shots or short arcs where they're playing the games themselves. That sounds like quite a good one to kind of ease you into it as well, because again, I guess it gives you a little bit more side information about what's going on rather than just the gameplay. Yeah. I'd say to me, it feels less beginner focused than Ox Venture because the, everyone involved has been involved in the UK role playing game scene for quite a long time. Right. Okay. And so there's maybe a little bit of assumed knowledge, but it is very interesting. And everyone on it is extremely likable, which I would prefer to listen to a, a podcast where I liked the people speaking than a podcast where I understood what was being said. Yes, yes, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. And uh, I've got one last suggestion off the top of my head that might be of interest to uh, PGR cast listeners, which is that there's there are a number of small channels being run by science communicators, which I know you as a former and current science communicator might be interested in yourself. Ooh, yes. I'm, I'm listening, my ears are pricked yeah. up. Um <laughs> Generally, the ones I found have all been very small. We're talking fewer than a thousand followers on Twitter, kind of small. The biggest one that I'm aware of is called RP Geeks. Obviously, capital G for geek, so it's RPG Geeks. And if you are familiar with YouTube and science communication, you might recognize Simon Clark. Maybe, maybe. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a little look see now. That's no no disservice to the other members of the RP Geeks channel. They are all extremely funny, interesting, and successful science communicators. They've, I think, just come to the end of their first campaign, which is set in a very sci-fi setting. And I'm pretty confident in saying that every member of the RP Geeks cast has a PhD in science, whether that's atmospheric sciences, neuroscience, or whatever. It means that they, they have a very solid base from which they can use whatever happens in their sci-fi fantasy world to explain that in real-world science terminology and use it as a very subtle vehicle for science communication, which is quite satisfying. That that sounds, yeah. I, I do like it when things like that happen. It's why I like um, books like um, the and Andy Weir writes, like The Martian, because mm. um, he does a very similar thing with getting a lot of science knowledge in there but in a very easy to understand well I say easy to understand easier to understand way um I Mm. think I just looked at the YouTube channel um for RPG RPG Geeks it's really awkward to say I think they pronounce it RP Geeks I want to say RP Geeks but that one um (laughs) I've just looked it up on YouTube and I can already see that they've got a one shot called Wibbly Wobbly Timey Wimey. Uh, (laughs) Is that a Doctor Who reference? I do believe that is a Doctor Who reference. Um, (laughs) So that's already, um, yeah. So yeah, 
Obviously, there are a ton of other groups that I could have mentioned. And I'm sure if anyone has listened this far into the podcast and I haven't yet mentioned their group, they are fuming. <laughs> but as we say, there's not enough time to listen to them all. Like I've I've heard great things about Dimension 20 and High Rollers and other groups with D&D related puns in the name. However, I actually heard of Dimension 20 this week Ooh. from a group I'm part of on Facebook, which is like a clothing group. I can't for the life of me remember what it was. I think it was clothing and someone mentioned it at some point. Um, and then loads of other people were like, oh my God, I like this too. And it was like trying to put this other niche thing into another niche thing and people understanding <laughs> about it. And I, I guess it's like, um, I think what anybody I've spoken to about RPGs is that um, if you mention it, there's normally going to be somebody mm. who's like, yes, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and then X, Y, Z kind of things. It's definitely, um, it, it's a cool community, it sounds like. I'm only on the the cusp of it at the moment, uh, on the outskirts of it. Yeah, l- l- looking in, trying to like borrow my way into it a little bit. Um, but no, it it's, sounds good so far. Yeah. I've got so many recommendations now. Um, mm. Too many. <laughs> Way too many. Yeah. Where, where to start? Where to start? Um, again, there's no pressure in listening to anything. I'm sure if you, as you, we were talking about before we started recording, if you listen to one thing when you're on the bus and you have time, there will be a recommendation that will lead you down a rabbit hole and you'll find your your campaign or your people that you enjoy listening to. And then you will find one other person with that interest. And like Lou and I did during this podcast episode, you will go off on a 10 minute tangent because you're so excited to find someone else who listens to them. (laughs) It's so nice when that happens. Mm. (laughs) Once again, to bring it back to the uh, PGR side, it's like finding if you work in interdisciplinary research and then you find someone else who is kind of between the same disciplines. That's so exciting because I'm used to spending time around freshwater biogeochemists or glaciologists who work in the Arctic and Antarctic and they typically use satellite imagery. And then when you find another person who looks at the chemistry of glacial rivers, especially if they're outside of the poles, I am enthralled. I will listen to anything they have to say. But it, it, it's so true. I guess the, the conference that I went to, um, it was to do with water and sanitation. And I work in, in sanitation, basically, um, but I'm in civil engineering. And so I'm in the water research group, which is great. And I have like lots of great colleagues in my office. But the sanitation side and the way that we're looking at it with international development is different to most people at the university. So going to the conference and actually having so many people there be interested in what we've we've been doing as a team and then also being interested in what everybody else is doing like you said because it's all on the same kind of the same kind of thing and you don't normally find many people that do that I guess that's the um that's the thing with a PhD is that you end up going really niche and it's finding other people that are also in Mm. that niche um (laughs) sometimes it can take traveling half the way across the world to find it Exactly that. And we've already left one great word of wisdom in this episode, which is go get yourself a cape. If Uh, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> if it's not too bold to add one additional thing, go find someone else in the same niche. Biology talks about how each, you know, each species needs its own niche. You don't want to be competing with someone else, but we're not competing. And neither in academia nor in role-playing games and hobbies is there a need to compete. We are a very social-based society. So if you can find someone else in your niche, get excited about it. Share with them how exciting it is to find someone that is interested in the same research or role-playing game or what was it you said earlier costuming clothing yes <laughs> clothes, clothes. <laughs> yeah. clothing brands i guess it is yeah. yeah find someone who shares that niche and let them know that that is a completely acceptable and cool thing to be excited about yes couldn't agree more thank you for listening to the pgr cast podcast about life as a postgraduate research student. Today's episode was brought to you by Rory Burford, Olivia Reddy and Lou Macy, with support from the Bristol Doctoral College. If you have any questions about today's episode, or you have suggestions for future episodes, then please contact us on Twitter at PGRcast or via email at pgrcast.podcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the PGR cast so that we can get our podcast out to more people like you. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> Cheerio. Fare thee well, Olga. <laughs> <laughs>